Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Galatians chapter 5, that's page number 974. You're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. Love the song we just sang. It's one of the songs I keep on my phone pretty much all the time just because it's such such good truth. I mean, some, sometimes you just need that. You just need to remember that in the midst of the valleys, in the midst of the things that are going on that our enemy means for evil, God is taking all of that and working it out for our good. It is uh, a truth I think we'll need until we see Jesus. So love that song. Glad we could sing it together. We are, uh, if you weren't here in the past two Sundays, this is part three of a three-part sermon series on trying to understand this biblical concept of freedom that Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter five. So each week what we've done is we've gone a certain distance into the study and then just kind of stopped, picked up last week, went another distance and stopped. We're going to pick up again today and just stop. So uh, well, today we'll finish it. If you were not here for the other two, you may be a little bit lost. I'll try to give you a little lead in just to help you out, but uh, it will be kind of an abrupt beginning just as we're continuing the message. If you want to hear the other two, go on to our website and you can listen to them there. We're going to be reading Galatians chapter 5 verses 1 to 15, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 1. Paul writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on your, our time together now in your word. Lord, I pray that you will uh, work through my cluttered mind and weak words. Use your word to do what only you can do. Help us to understand and appreciate the full freedom we have in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, in ancient Greece, uh, there were some who believed that the world could be divided into basically two components or realms. They would be a physical realm and a spiritual realm. And this belief was known as dualism. It was a philosophy that was very, very common in Paul's day. 
Uh, Aristotle, for example, was a proponent of this kind of thinking. He would talk about the difference between matter and form. In his mind, matter referred to the the physical, whatever it is you're talking about, form was what that matter was trying to represent. Uh, sometimes he would talk about body and soul. Sometimes he would talk about material and immaterial, that sort of thing. And what was often believed about these two realms is that one was inherently good and the other was inherently evil. And generally it was the physical realm was inherently bad or evil, while the spiritual realm was inherently good. And so you can imagine all kinds of problems that might come out of that sort of thinking as they tried to process the world through that lens of understanding. Uh, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that philosophy this morning and its effects on the early church because it did have a number of effects on uh, the early church, but I'll point out one just by way of example. And, and this is where some in the early church uh, who would deny the full humanity of Jesus because of their belief, really their unquestioned belief, in the philosophy of dualism. So in their mind, their way of looking at things was this, if the physical is inherently evil, and if Jesus is really holy God, then there is no possible way that he could take on human flesh because to do so would try to mingle the holiness of God with the sinfulness of, of the body. Therefore, it couldn't be. He just wasn't, he wasn't man. He may have looked like man. You know, when the disciples and the people the, of Jesus' day saw him, sure, he looked like a guy, a normal guy, but it was a mirage. It was a, just an appearance. It wasn't the real thing. He was kind of fooling them. He's not truly man. Well, of course, that's a heresy. Uh, if Jesus did not come in the flesh to take our place, then our salvation is, is not finished. It's not done. The writer of Hebrews says that he had to be made like us in every respect so that he could be a faithful high priest in order to make pr uh, propitiation for the sins of the people. So without the full humanity of Jesus, our salvation is impossible. My point here is that you see just how in one particular aspect that uh, that philosophy of dualism played itself out in the life of the early church through that particular heresy. Well, despite the fact that dualism is wrong on a number of its presuppositions, there is a kernel or two of truth hidden here and there amidst the multitude of, of untruths that are, are part of that system of thought, the biggest of which is that there really are two realms in which we all operate. We get that, I would think, right? the material or physical realm and then the spiritual realm. I tend to generally think of the human body as an example here. There is a sense in which this flesh that makes up my body is not really me. Uh, it hit me this week that it's been so many years now at Cornerstone since I told the story of how I put my finger in a table saw that uh, there's probably half the church who doesn't even know I ever did that. But about eight years ago, I was working on something and uh, was needed to make a really fine cut. And so I took off the guards from the table saw, because that's a smart idea, every time, and uh, decided, I'm not stupid completely. I thought I'd make my own little guard to try to help myself out. And so I had that up there, and I was making the cut. And at the last second, the blade shot what I was cutting out. And then all of a sudden, my guard slipped. And next thing you know, finger in the table saw. And uh, I looked down, all I saw was bone and blood, and it was gross, and some of you are going to pass out if I go any further with that story, so I won't continue on with that. I just grabbed what I thought was left hanging on and took it to my chest and said, Jamie, we got to go to the emergency room, and so off we went. It was actually quite funny because as we're flying down Oceana Boulevard to General Booth, uh, Virginia Beach General, uh, she's like panicking, and I'm over there doing Lamaze breathing so I don't pass out. I was like, this is kind of ironic, right? Like, it's normally the other way around. The husband's driving like a maniac, and the wife is doing the breathing, and no, not that day, but anyway... It's occurred to me that as I did that, I took off about a quarter inch. I don't know if you can tell from there, but just a little, little shorter. I just shaved it, really. Uh, it occurred to me that 
I didn't, I didn't really lose any of me, right? I mean, I just I took off a quarter inch, that's all. If I could have taken off the whole arm, it wouldn't have taken off any of me because I'm, I'm not this. This body of mine is not me. I, I get it that I'm attached to it, but I'm not, it's not really who I am. I, I'm, I'm something other than just this body, and yet, I can't deny this is me, and it hurt really bad when I did that. I mean, I felt every last moment of that and, and hated it as, we, as I did it there. So, you know, we live in these two realms. We operate in these two realms. We interact in these two realms. There's a physical realm and a spiritual realm, and, and both are legitimately true. Well, you know, as we've been studying Paul's understanding of freedom here in, in Galatians 5 verse 1, there's a sense in which these six categories or six ideas of freedom that I've been showing you over these three messages can kind of be divided between those two realms, spiritual and, and physical. The first three belong to the spiritual realm, meaning they primarily have to do with truths about God. You kind of understand them primarily on the vertical level and, and how it makes us think about and react and respond to God. The first one we saw was that being free is tied to having a relationship with God. So we used to be under a curse. We used to be sinners. We used to be rebels and aliens and strangers to God. Now we have been, uh, Jesus has taken our curse. He has forgiven us of our sin. We have now been adopted as sons through his death on our behalf. And so our relationship with God has been radically altered. It was the first main component of our freedom. The second one was that being free is the result of the death of Christ. And so in love and in grace and for his own purposes, God sent his son to die for our sins, not just to provide us with salvation in the future, but to provide us with salvation now. We have life now, freedom now through the death of Christ. The third one was that being free is defined as life in the spirit. This is where we were last Sunday in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul goes to great lengths to show the differences between the old covenant, the law, and the new covenant, life in the spirit. He says that old covenant was all about the letter, right? It's all about commands and code, and it's a ministry of death and of condemnation. And yeah, it may have had some glory, but that was only a temporary glory. It wasn't meant to last. Whereas this new covenant, though, is different. The focus is on God's spirit within us. It's a ministry of life and freedom from condemnation. And its glory not only far surpasses the glory of the old covenant, but but it never ends. It's, it's a permanent glory. And he sums all of that up there in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17 by reminding us that as this has put us now in a, a new relationship with the Lord, we need to understand that where the Lord is, that's, that's the Spirit. Where the Spirit is, excuse me, that, that's where freedom is found. And so we ask the question, freedom from what? Well, freedom from spiritual death that we were under due to the law and freedom from all the condemnation and guilt and fear and shame that were ours because of sin and freedom from our own self-righteousness of trying to, to find our own acceptance before God through the law. And so now we're free from those things, free to go out and live. And I mean, really live before God, free to, free to go out and, and be free from the power of sin and guilt and shame and fear, free to find our complete acceptance before God by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, and then, with that, to live acceptably before God by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. So all of these things apply, you could say, to that spiritual realm, to the vertical. The final three that we're going to look at here in just a second apply at the horizontal level. You can think of them in that way and how they're going to help us understand just life today and what it, what it means now to, to live in freedom today. And so with that introduction and reminder... Let's look at number four, if you're keeping a notes from the prior weeks. Fourth, and this I think will be quick and obvious, being free is something genuine Christians can experience, but non-believers cannot. 
Being free is something that genuine believers can experience, but non-believers cannot. And just as a quick reminder, I'm using Scott McKnight's six main categories as he studied freedom across all of Paul's writings. I'm using his main uh, categories as kind of the main points along the way. And this is the only one that I reworded, because when he talks about this particular category, he describes it as the polemical dimension of freedom. But I didn't use that word because, one, nobody knows what it means. And then, two, uh, because no one knows, knows what it means, it wouldn't be clear. So here's what the word polemic means. A polemic is a verbal or written attack on someone or something. It's a verbal or written attack on someone or something. So according to him, this would be the attack dimension of freedom. That freedom, the freedom we have in Jesus can be used to attack. Well, what's he talking about that? Well, he's taking this here from Paul's use of the idea of freedom, particularly in the letter to the Galatians. If you haven't picked up on it by this point, you're not paying attention. The whole letter to the Galatians is a polemic, okay? The entire thing, start to finish, is an attack by Paul on these false teachers and the false gospel that they have been proclaiming. And so Paul's doing everything in his power to show them that the freedom offered in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ is so far superior to any other gospel. In fact, no other gospel offers this kind of freedom. And this is why I reworded this particular category to say that being free is something that genuine Christians can experience, but that that unbelievers just simply can't. Because any other gospel than the gospel of grace, any other gospel than the gospel of faith in Christ alone, of life in and through the Spirit, it automatically leads to bondage. Automatically leads to bondage. And as you can see here in verse 1, Paul never wants true believers to go back in any way, shape, or form to any kind of bondage or slavery. And that's because any other gospel other than the gospel of grace is by necessity based on human performance in some way, shape, or form. It it just has to be. You know, if you're good enough, if you're righteous enough, if you do all the right things, or at least you do more of the right things than the bad things, or whatever the case may be, then God will accept you. Folks, this is the gospel that I grew up in. This isn't just like theoretical. Some of you grew up in this kind of gospel too, but I don't know your story. I'll just say mine. The, the, the churches that I attended as a child taught me, taught me, like actively taught me, that my salvation was based either on A, me not sinning, or B, me confessing and then asking forgiveness for my sins as soon as possible after I had done it. You know, in other words, before I die. Like, I have to every day be thinking, what did I do today? I've got to confess that, ask God to forgive me of that. I hope I don't get hit by a car before I get to that point. Maybe I should just always do the blanket, God, forgive me for everything, prayers, you know, can I confess everything I've ever done today, uh, forgive me for all, you know. This was what I grew up in. And, and you're like, did you grow up Catholic? No, I didn't. I grew up Pentecostal. I'm not saying that all Pentecostal churches believe this, because I'm sure they don't, but all the ones we attended did. Do you have any idea how much fear I had as a child? Trying to live that way? Day to day, like, did I do anything? Oh, God, just forgive me for this. Uh, Forgive me for anything. Like, I mean, each and every day, this is what you're going through? It really was slavery. And I totally understand then Paul's imagery here of a yoke of slavery. For those of you who don't know what a yoke is, it is not the inside of an egg, just so you can remember, okay? It's this. It's this big, heavy, wooden beam that you put around an ox's neck so that it can pull a a plow for you. You want that around your neck? (laughs) 
When you look at this picture, think, you know, think of burden. Think of entrapment. Think of what you have to do, the work that has to go into all of that. It's slavery, and that image exactly depicts what I felt because it was all about my performance. Could I perform well enough today to make God happy with me, or would I not be able to do so, and I would end up in hell if something unforeseen ha happened? I could never be good enough. So I was always filled with fear. And I would argue that this is the case for anyone and everyone who does not fully embrace the gospel of grace. This is the case. It, it has to be. I would argue that they are in bondage. And in this sense, then, the freedom that we're talking about in these messages, the freedom that Paul is talking about here in Galatians, it's needed for an attack. To an attack against any other gospel that would pull someone back into that yoke of slavery. We can use it to, to tell them, no, that isn't true. The freedom of the, uh, of the gospel is something only genuine believers can experience. No, no non-believer can experience that. And so if you are here today and in any way, shape, or form trying to find your acceptance before God based on your own performance, understand you're wearing that yoke. And that yoke will carry you to hell. There is one way of salvation, and it is the gospel of grace that sets you free. Fifth, being free is personal and existential in the sense of being liberated to be what God wants us to be. That's kind of a longer one and a little more complicated. I'll say it again, then explain it. Being free is personal and existential in the sense of being liberated to be what God wants us to be. Now, my guess would be that up to this point in the series, and really any time in Galatians that the idea of freedom has come up anywhere, my guess would be that the vast majority of people who have heard these messages have probably thought of freedom as only being in terms of freedom from, and never, or almost never, in terms of freedom to. You understand the difference in those two ideas? Freedom from and freedom to? Now, clearly, when Paul talks about freedom, he definitely talks about freedom from, for example, freedom from sin is the easiest one. Well, we've already said it. You're free. This is who you are. This is what God has made you through the death of Christ. You are free. You are no longer under the law. The power of sin has been broken. In Christ, you have died to both the law and to sin. You no longer have to live under. In fact, Romans 6 says you should stop living under its power. You should stop presenting your members to it because if you're still a slave of sin in some way, you have died to sin. So how could you still live in it? But of course, that's the problem, isn't it? We, we hear those words and we think those things. We go, yeah, I don't, I don't really feel free. And because we don't feel free, without even realizing it sometimes, we tend to go, well, I must not be free. It becomes like an identity issue, not just an experience issue, but an identity issue. I must not be free since I don't experience freedom all the time. And so we live in a wrong identity. And so when someone like me, for example, in these messages stands up here and talks about freedom, our minds instantly go down the free from path and we judge ourselves by all the things that we don't do. And all the things that we don't feel free from. And I get that. I totally understand that. But, but let me remind you of your identity of who you really are. You are free. I say it over and over and over. You are free. And the funny thing is, is that freedom doesn't come as opposition to slavery. You're actually still a slave. That's the beauty of the, of the New Testament. 
You're just no longer a slave to sin. You got a new master. You know, as you look through the New Testament, it's at least, at least three things or three people, three ideas that we are slaves to now. The first one is we're slaves of Christ. And it would take us all day if I tried to go through every reference to uh, the New Testament talking about a slave of Christ, a servant of Christ, a bond servant of Christ, all of these ideas. Over and over and over again, this is what we're called because it's what we are. Or secondly, the idea that we're a slave of God, Romans 6.22, for example, a lot of other passages. Again, it's who you are. The direct implication is that you have been set free from that other identity, and you are now a free slave of God, a free slave of Christ, and you're also a slave of righteousness, and so Romans 6 is where this is coming from. Just like you used to present your members, the pieces of you, your mind, your body, your thoughts, your words, your plans, your desires, just like you used to present all of those members to sin because you were its slave and you did what sin wanted you to do. So now we're supposed to present those same members to God because we are slaves of righteousness. So when was, you know, when was the last time you did that? When was the last time you woke up in the morning? And I'm not, I don't care about the wording and how you do it necessarily. Just, this would be, be a little odd, but when was the last time you got up and said, God, take my mind today. May my mind serve you in what I think and how I view the world and how I process things that happen to me. Take, take my words today, God. May the words that come out of my mouth be your words. May they reflect your truth, your grace, your kindness. Take my hands today. May the things I do, my feet, the places I go, be reflective of my real reality as being a slave of righteousness. When was the last time you actually presented your members to God? And again, it doesn't have to be like I just described it. I, I, I'm not indicating that at all, but but. Somehow, this is who we are, and that's supposed to show itself out. You are no longer what you used to be. You might live that way sometimes. You might feel that way sometimes, but you now have a new master. You are a slave to Christ, a slave to God, and a slave to righteousness. So go out and live out what you've now become, which, guess what, is number six. Finally, being free and this is how he words it. I left his wording. It has social implications. It has social implications. That's just his way of saying the idea we just saw about who you really are, should, it should flesh itself out in real life and how you interact with the people around you. This one's focused on how we live. So again, there's a freedom from and a freedom to pass. So of course, you still have your Bibles open because nobody in this room ever closes their Bibles while I'm preaching. So go to Galatians 5, verses 16 to 24. Or if you were, unfortunately, your child closed your Bible for you, page 974 again, just so you can remember. Look down below, and I want you to take a moment. I'll give you about 30 seconds. I won't interrupt you. I want you to skim quickly verses 19 to 21. Do it right now. Go. Just skim 19 to 21. All right, you got it? You got an idea of what's going on there anyway? It's easy for us to focus on verses 19 to 21 and think, yeah, that's, that's what we need to be free from right there. That's what we need to be free from. In fact, for some of you, you might be reading some of those things and be like, that's what I'm struggling with right now. This is, the, this is where I live on a daily basis. Okay, I need to be free from those things. Okay, that's good. You're right. We should stop doing those things. They're bad. Christians should not live that way anymore. All right, so you're still there in chapter 5. Now do the same thing in verses 22 to 23. Skim it real quick. Got it? 
When was the last time you read verses 22 and 23 and went, man, God, thank you so much that I am free to do these things? Right? I mean, we read the first list and we're like, oh, I need to stop this and I need to not be that. But I don't know how often we think of the next list and don't read it in some kind of a condemning way and be like, oh, I am free to do these things. Have you ever considered that you have been set free to genuinely love for the first time in your life as a believer? That you are finally free to experience real, true joy. That you are free to live at peace with God and to experience peace with those around you. That you're free to be patient, you're free to be kind and free to be good and faithful and self-controlled. You get to be these things. You're free to do those things. I just don't know that we ever stop and really think about and meditate on the freedom to side of the gospel. Just the freedom from. And I'm not playing down the freedom from. I'm, I'm all for the freedom from. And sometimes that's where we live and we're fighting for the freedom from. But when do we fight for the freedom to? That's my question. And so, just so you see this, while some of those things there in verses 22 and 23 certainly could apply to our relationship with God, I really do think that Paul's overall focus is at this horizontal level and how we, we go out and live out this gospel and this freedom that we have. And so just to pick two as an example, he says we're free to love people. You're free to love. You used to be controlled by envy, if you look back in the other verses, envy and strife and rivalries and dissensions, anger. That's what you used to be. But you're now free to love, genuine, Christ-like love, selfless love. You're free to do these things. You're free to fulfill the law, verse 14, by loving your neighbor as yourself. Or if I remember something that's popping into my head randomly from John 13, 34, 35, I am free to go out and love others as Christ has loved me because that is the real indication that I am a disciple of him. You're free. Not to be governed by the envy and the, the strife and the dissensions and the anger that used to control you. You're free now to love. Or here's another one. You're free to do good and be kind. Do you guys ever have this experience where you're reading through Scripture and you could have read a passage like a hundred times. And all of a sudden one day it's like, oh, did someone add something? Like here's something I don't feel like I've ever noticed before. Like it's there. And um, you know, I, I've, I've, over, I don't know, two, three years ago I started as I was reading through Scripture the, the idea of good works, that phrase, just started popping out at me because it's all scattered throughout the New Testament. And normally when Christians hear good works, we instantly like, you know, do the crucifix, like it's bad, evil, we got to stay away from that because we're afraid that we'll somehow indicate or think that, that we're communicating that salvation is by good works. And of course, that's a lie. That's not true. It's by grace alone. But if we can just all like agree that that's out of the picture for a moment, do you understand how important good works are to a believer? For example, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that having been saved by grace through faith, not of our doing, gift to God, not of works, no one can boast. You know those verses. Very next verse he says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Have you thought about the idea that God prepared beforehand that you would walk in good works? You. He gave you certain good works. He has a plan for you to walk in them, to live your life in them. You better be fulfilling that plan. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? I mean, I hadn't. I'm reading this and I'm like, my goodness, what, like, Lord, what, what should I be doing? 
What good works should I be looking for? Like, what are you going to put in front of me today? Like, that whole concept that he had prepared it beforehand was like, again, it was, I, I read that a hundred times, and for some reason it never hit me. Or, or here's another one in Titus. Uh, Titus is such a short little book, a little letter, but it is full of references to, to good works. For example, in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul tells Titus to be a, a model of good works as a pastor. That's really convicting to me. In verse 14, he tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Are you zealous? For, like you wake up in the morning like, I get to do good works today. I'm so excited I can't wait. I should call my friend over here and see if we can all go do good works together. Zealous? Really? Chapter 3, verse 1, we're supposed to be ready for every good work. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 14, we're supposed to be devoting ourselves to good works. Devote has the idea of purposeful planning. Like, I'm supposed to get up in the morning and go, I have to do a good work today. Maybe more than one. I wonder what I should do. Who should I think about? What, the, what are the... And look, I'm not talking about crazy stuff. I'm like, Jesus said, give a some cold water to someone, you're not losing your reward. I'm not, I don't have to donate a kidney. I'm just like trying to figure out like, God, what is it that you want? What are you putting in front of me? Where are the options here? Even in Galatians, look at chapter six, verse 10. He says, as we have opportunity, we're supposed to do good to everyone, especially to those who are fellow believers. I could keep going. My point is, is, is do we even think this way? Do we even see ourselves as being free to pursue goodness and kindness? When's the last time you just got up and like, I'm free. I'm no longer shackled to be selfish. I'm free to do these things, to live out all the fruits of the Spirit and so many other things that God does in us. Understand that this is what freedom means to Paul. You're now free to live out who you have become in in Christ, and that has both positive and negative connotations, free from, free to. And so let's just review all six ideas. First, being free is tied to having a relationship with God. Second, being free is the result of the death of Christ. Third, being free is defined as life in the Spirit. Fourth, being free is something genuine Christians can experience, but non-believers cannot. Fifth, being free is personal and existential in the sense of being liberated to be what God wants us to be. And then finally, being free has social implications. It changes how we live. As you look across all of Paul's letters and you try to understand the totality of what he means by this idea of freedom, and we could have, we could have expanded this to 10 messages and gone into more detail with them, but at least have an idea. This is what he means. And as we begin to move forward now in chapter 5 and look at all the specific areas that he's concerned about, that the Galatians live out their freedom, we're going to keep coming back to these six truths. In various ways, at different points, and different ideas, you're going to hear them come up over and over again. Because for Paul, this idea of freedom is at the very heart of the gospel. E.J. Epp says it like this. The implications of this Christian freedom, as Paul develops it, are vast and far-reaching, but essentially... He sees freedom as a reality affected in and through the Christ event, talking about the death of Christ, which has broken the power of sin and neutralized the individual hostility against God, which at the same time has covered the guilt and stain of sin and erased the past, which has crushed all enslavement to self, to religious convention, uh, to the present powers of evil and to cosmic forces, and which has triumphed over every force that dominates humankind, humankind 
including human mortality itself. Not even death wins. Even death has been defeated by freedom. But this is only one side of the Pauline coin, he says. The freedom from what side? There's also the significant freedom for what side? And this many-faceted emphasis in Paul, though it can be simply stated, is infinitely complex in its outworking. Here it is. A Christian is now free to obey God in a radical fashion by serving his fellow human beings in selfless love. I love that sentence so much, I'm going to put it here behind me so you can read it. A Christian is now free to obey God in a radical fashion by serving his fellow human beings in selfless love. You want to understand what freedom is going to mean? Especially the freedom to side? Here you go. This is it. And just think about it, because this week I want you to go out and live like this. I want you to obey God, not by what you fight against. Don't, don't take that the wrong way. I want, I want you fighting against things. I want you fighting against sin. But sometimes I fear that believers spend so much time fighting against certain things in their life that they never end up finding the time to fight for certain things. So they spend all their day trying to not sin and never spend their day just trying to know and love their God. Something seems off in that to me. So, so obey God, not by just what you fight against, but also by what you fight for. And I want you to obey him in a radical fashion, because recognize no one in this world tells you to live like this. Our world tells us to live for ourselves. Fight for yourself. Look for your happiness, your fulfillment, your satisfaction, your joy. Do whatever is best for you. What Jesus came and taught goes right into the teeth of every last bit of that. So don't go out and be like everybody else. Go out and obey God in this radical fashion by serving those around you. Say, I don't know who to, do you have anyone living in your house? Do you have a friend? Do you work with people? Are there people in your community group? Is there someone sitting next to you right this moment? Okay, you've got a place to start. This isn't rocket science. What has God already put in your path? Who has he put in your path? Serve them. Serve them, and not just in some kind of a self-serving way, in a manipulative way. No, you're going to do it through selfless love, Christ-like love. Just as he gave himself, you give yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. You want to memorize the whole law? Memorize that. You're done. You got that. If you can do that perfectly, you would never need to memorize the other 612 commands, okay? That's, that's enough right there. So obey God this week by serving him in selfless love, serving the people around you in selfless love. You are free to please him in this way. So go and live in that freedom. Would you bow your heads? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.